hope that that is not a precursor to kind of what I want to talk about tonight, that I'm going to forget everything that I have prepared and everything that I've thought about. But as I've said many a time, and I'm pretty sure I've said it here from the pulpit, if my head wasn't screwed on, I would lose it too. So uh, here we are. And tonight I want to talk about some miracles of Jesus. And I don't really even know how to present what is in my head, and so I'm going to do the absolute best that I can. You know, we've been studying the book of Mark downstairs in the young adult class, and one of the things that we've been trying to do is pay closer attention to detail. And the Gospel of Mark is one of those Gospels that gives a lot of detail. And I'm going to read you something from Mark the 6th chapter, that has really bothered me over the last couple weeks of a detail that either I didn't know or I had forgot, and it has made me really think about something. But before I do that, I want you to think of three miracles of Jesus. I imagine most of us in the audience can think of three miracles of Jesus. Everyone got at least one or two? All right. Now, I want you to ask yourself this question. Did Jesus get asked to perform that miracle? Did someone ask him, hey, do this for me? Or was this a miracle that Jesus did without even being asked about that? And it may be a mixture of both. And one of the things that I am coming to really pay attention to is the difference in the miracles when someone asks Jesus to do it and a miracle that Jesus performs when no one asks him about it. And so that gets me to the statement in Mark 6 that has kind of bothered me over the last last couple weeks. In Mark chapter 6, as Jesus is walking on the water, verse 48 it says, And he saw that they, his disciples, were making headway painfully, For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, he meant to pass them by. That has bothered me. And I'll tell you why that has bothered me. When you think back to the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness with the devil, right? He's hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights in that time period, right? And one of the temptations were, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. And we always say Jesus couldn't do that. Because that would be a selfish thing to do. That would be a misuse of power, right? And we know that he quotes from Deuteronomy in the 8th chapter, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's something more important than food. And we understand that concept. We understand that teaching. But we also completely understand that when Jesus performs a miracle, it is not favoritism. It is not for His own personal ease of life, comfort of life. And this statement of Jesus is walking on the water while his disciples are in a boat in the middle of a storm, and he's walking to the other side, and he means to pass them by, says, how is that not selfish? How is that not in some way for 
his ease of life. And if we maybe only have Mark's account, maybe we would not get all of that. But I want you to go to Matthew's account of this in Matthew the 14th chapter. And for the record, we're going to look at about three different miracles tonight, maybe four depending on the time, where Jesus is not asked to perform a miracle. But yet he does the miracle on his own just like this. Again, and let me tell the story of how this all goes. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Which, by the way, he was not asked to do. The crowd was not saying, hey, we are hungry, give us food. We would see that he had compassion on the crowd. Okay? And so, he's just finished that. And he sent his disciples immediately, Mark tells us, into the boat to go to the sea, while he himself stayed on the land and went to a secluded place to pray. And as he finishes his prayer... It is then that it is between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning that he decides to go to the other side as he sees them struggling in the sea and walks on this water, meaning to pass them by. And so let's pick up in Matthew, the 14th chapter. Let's pick up and see how Matthew tells the story. Pick up verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, so the wind was against him. And so verse 26, or verse 25, In the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. You say, that answers the question. I say, no, it doesn't answer the question. I want you to think about it for a second, right? You see somebody walking on water. You're... I think my first inclination would also be, it's a ghost. Because you are not thinking that any human being can walk on water. Nor are you expecting it in any way. And for the record, what are they doing? They are sitting there working hard on the oars, trying to get to land, trying to get to safety, not being able to do it because of the wind. And then this ghost speaks to you. And this ghost speaks in a familiar voice. A voice that you have been hearing for a year plus talk to you day in, day out, and says, don't be afraid. It's I. I think I'm like them. I'm still terrified. Who is talking? Like, that's the voice of Jesus. I, I get that. But could that really be Jesus on there? And that's exactly what Peter says. Notice the next verse, verse 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I think I have a relatively distinctive voice, right? But if we were out here in the dark, there were no street lights going, and you just kind of see a shadow, 
And you hear maybe from a distance, because remember, he's not probably sneaking up right beside the boat to come grab them by the hair like we picture ghosts to do, right, where they push the, the hair off the shoulder and get as close to them as we can. He's just going, I'm assuming, the straightest way. But whatever the case may be, imagine that we're out there and you see a shadow. And you're like, I don't know what that is. And you hear, hey, it's me. And I usually say, who is me? <laughs> because even in that, because the fear kind of overtakes all that. And he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out here. And I find that interesting as well, is that don't permit me, command me. You tell me to come out there. And so he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. That kind of blows my mind. That this is the way you want to be shown that this is Jesus, this is your Lord, is, hey, let me walk on this water too. But again, that tells us a little bit of something about the faith of Peter, right? Is that if you can do it, you can make me do it too. Which is what he's been teaching the apostles all along. Is that the authority that I have, I am giving to you. You can cast out these demons. You can heal these sick. You can preach uh, the gospel. You can do all these things that I can do because I'm giving you power. Is it you? So it was him. So verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's like you weren't doubting a minute ago. What happened? What happened between here and here? You were ten steps. You were great. You were doing great. What happened? What got in your way? And how many times is that kind of us, right? We are assured of something. And then, in just a matter of no time, I'm not so sure about that anymore. And that's not the point of the story. 32 and 33 is. When he got into the boat, the wind ceased. And by the way, this is not one of the times where he says, Peace be still. This is, he gets in the boat and the wind stops. Instantaneously. Again, blows my mind trying to be there on that scene. And then 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. I think Jesus knew all along what their reaction would be. That he, that he knew that they would see him. And that they would call it, but he wasn't going directly to the boat. To, and I, I don't get all of that. Except for their reaction is, you're not just Jesus. You're not just this great teacher that we've been following. You are the Son of God. And if my memory serves me correctly, this is the only time that we have them worshiping they have fallen, I'm sure, at other times when Peter was called, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He fell at his feet. And you can say that as worship. But where the text specifically says they worship, it's the time when he walked on the water, meaning to pass them by. 
And what happens when he does that is they say, you are the son of God. And they worship him. I wonder if it would take something drastic like that in my life to be willing to admit, you know what? You are the son of God. Nathaniel had admitted that in John chapter 1. He had said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. When he found out when the Lord said to him, Oh, I saw you under the fig tree. Indeed, is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Blew his mind. It takes amazing things that you don't expect to happen for you to realize, man, this truly is the Son of God. Now, I want to think about another one of these miracles that happens when he does not, when nothing is being asked. I want you to go back to Mark, the third chapter. And in Mark, the third chapter, it's on the Sabbath day, and Jesus is in the synagogue like he is normally in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And they're there, and there's a man who has a withered hand, so he is he's hurt. And so verse 2, they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, again, I want you to think about that. Have you ever had somebody out there trying to catch you in something? They're setting you up. They want you to fail. And you know that. I don't think there's any of us as human beings who feel good about that. Like, man, you know what? I'm really glad they're trying to make me fall flat on my face and catch me. And guess what? Jesus is no different than that. Jesus knows what is going on. And so notice in verse 3, he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. I don't know if he said it in that tone, but that's kind of the way I, I picture it. Come here. Right? They're already looking. They see the guy. They see Jesus. And so they're connecting the dots. Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save or to kill? I always love how Jesus turns it on people. Let me ask you, let me ask you a quick question here. Is it good on the Sabbath? Is it lawful? Is this within the law to do good on the Sabbath? Yeah, they would say, absolutely it's good. It's lawful. What about to do harm? Oh, no, not lawful. You can't do harm on the Sabbath day. Can you save a life on the Sabbath day? Yeah, if the ox falls in the ditch, yeah, we're going to get it out. We're going to save that life. What about harming a life? But notice they didn't answer the question, did they? But they were silent. Because he asked the question that they didn't want him to ask. Because he knows that they are sitting there trying to trap him. He knows what is at them because, verse 5, he looked at them with anger. And that's another one of the tales that I picked up on Mark that I hadn't really noticed before. Is Jesus looks people in the eye. He looked them one by one that was out there trying to get him. Stared him straight in the eye. 
And we know those angry eyes, don't we? When mom, dad, spouse gets angry with us, we don't want to make eye contact, do we? We want to stick that head right in the ground, don't want any part of it. And I imagine there was a similar response there. He looked at them with anger because he was grieved at their hardness of heart and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and the hand was restored. The guy wasn't there to get a miracle performed on him. The guy happened to be in the right place at the right time, apparently. And they set him up. And he goes on, and so notice how they responded. The Pharisees went out and immediately, on the Sabbath day, held counsel with the Herodians against him how to save his life. How to destroy him. That's what they're doing on the Sabbath day, is they are setting up traps to try to kill someone. And then when he doesn't fall into the trap, they go out and they try to figure out another way to kill the guy. And you're going to sit there and you're going to put on this air of, oh, I'm so great and all everything. Only person that knew that in the room was them And he did exactly what he had to do to show two things. He wasn't working on the Sabbath. What he was doing on the Sabbath was 100% lawful. It was not work. Nor would it be work for that man in John chapter 5 to roll up his bed and put it under his arm, his, his carpet, and put it under his arm when the person that made him heal well said, you do that. That's not work. That's just not it. But yet what I think it does is when Jesus does these things, you've got one group that says, this is the Son of God. You've got another group that says, I hate Him, I'm going to kill Him. And it separates the wheat from the tares, the men from the boys, the fakes from the phony and the real, and all those different types of things and the only one that knows that is Jesus. So I want you to think about one more of these at least. It's in the fifth chapter of the book of Mark. And that's one of those times, and we even saw it a little earlier, where Jesus can read into people's hearts and in people's minds. Again, that's a scary thing for me to think about. But there is this guy, Jairus, who comes up to Jesus. And he actually asks for a miracle. His daughter is at the point of death and she is sick. And he wants Jesus to come and lay his hands on her. And so Jesus agrees to go. While they are walking along the way and they are going to the place, there it says, and let's pick up, oh, in verse uh, verse 24 middle of verse 24. So we went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Again, I want to paint that picture. What's the biggest crowd you've ever had following you? A couple kids uh, climbing all over you? Maybe you got 10, 15 people following you around? I, I, I don't know. I've never had a big crowd following me. But 
we've got a large crowd thronging him. So let's put our minds in the field of celebrities or athletes. You take your pick. You see a celebrity out in the street and everyone else sees a celebrity. What do they do? They run right to him. They're getting all around him. And what we got the paparazzi. And then we got the bodyguards holding everybody off. Now you stay back, right? Well, guess who was the bodyguards of, of Jesus? The old apostles, the old disciples, they're like, get away from him. Don't bring those children here. Don't you dare come anywhere near him. And you blind man who, who's calling out, don't stop crying out for Jesus. He's not going to help you. And by the way, another time Jesus says, hey, be quiet. Bring them to me, right? Like, who put you, I, you're not on bodyguard duty. And here they are going through this big old crowd, and they are touching all over the place. And in this crowd of people is this woman who has a major issue, verse 25. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years. Michael has been here how many years? 15. Anybody been here just 12 years? It's double what I've been here. So imagine you've got to put up with me for another six years. This is how long that woman has been sick. Twelve years. Kindergarten. Let's go kindergarten to senior year. All your, all your elementary to, to high school. She's been sick. And she has spent all of her money. And she has gone to doctors, verse 26. And she suffered much and she spent all that she had. And she's no better, but rather she's worse. Which is usually what happens with diseases, isn't it? Except for when you go to a doctor, you expect to be made better. So for all of her life, basically, well, I shouldn't say for all of her life, but for an extended period of time, she's wasting money, getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And notice what has happened with her, verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She's never even met Jesus. She has just heard about what Jesus is able to do. And so she comes, and here's what she thinks. It says she came uh, up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I want you to think about how probably difficult that was for her to get through in the crowd. Have you ever been in a concert or a sporting event and you're trying to get closer and closer to the celebrity or to the stage? That's a really difficult thing to get through. And you're working your way and all these things. And she's going through all of that great effort because she, she's only heard him. Heard about him and said, man, if I just touch his garment, I will be made well. And so guess what? Verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately she knew something was different when she touched his garment and Jesus, here it is, perceiving in himself that power had gone out. This is a miracle that I don't even... I would say Jesus performed this miracle. Yet at the same time, it is though Jesus is just an instrument of the miracle performed by God's Spirit in this way. I'll draw your attention to another thing. 
You remember we have the apostles later on in the book of Acts that even the apron of them, if they just touched those, they were made well. Is that what is being said here is that Jesus is an agent for the miracle to be performed, but he's not the one even performing the miracle. God is using him because of this woman's faith. And so he says, in the midst of this crowd, he turned about in the crowd and he said, who touched my garments? What? Who touched me? Which is like everybody, which is what the disciples say. And his disciples said, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? What do you want me to say? That guy touched you, and that guy touched you, and she touched you. What do you mean, who touched you? And so, again, 32, he looked around to see who had done it. Again, that's another one of those statements that has kind of got my attention. He perceived that the power had gone out. And he knows what is in the heart of everyone. But again, there's still a huge crowd of people. And he looks to see, and I think he knows exactly who it is. But the woman, verse 33, knowing what had happened to her. I want you to think about that. Was there anyone else in the crowd besides her who knew for sure who it was and what had happened? Nobody else knew that. And so imagine if you touch some celebrity. And they said, who was that? Wouldn't you have the same reaction she had? She was afraid and trembling. Oh, man, he's going to be so upset with me. I shouldn't have touched his garment after all. I should have just stayed back. I should have found some other way to do it. I shouldn't have never got close to him. But what she does, she came in fear. But notice... But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She told him everything. She laid it all out there. I heard about you. I believe that if I could just touch your garment, I'd be made well. I touched your garment and I could tell that I was made well in front of this great, huge crowd that had no idea anything was going on. But Jesus knew. And so those disciples, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Like, I think what he's showing us in this is, Hey, I know what's going on. I know how much you are believing in me. How much you are willing to do for me. She not only had to come, she had to admit it in front of everybody else. I was the one. And she had enough faith that she would be willing to confess that. Even after being made better, I I, I might have said, man, I'm better now. I'm, I'm good. I've been looking around like the rest of them, right? Not her. She came and she fell at his feet and said, here's what happened. And isn't that what he wants out of you and me? 
This ain't nobody else. We're in the same crowd of people. We don't know what's going on in anybody else. We don't know what their real level of faith is. But Jesus says, I know it. And I'll reward it. Is that I will bless someone who has this type of faith. And we know that his disciples did not have that type of faith. They weren't quite there yet. And so, again, it's an example of you're not there yet. But here's the last one I want to point out. I already made an allusion to it with the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 8, or chapter 6. And the reason I like this one is because I imagine most of us, when we thought about our list of miracles that Jesus performed, I guess this was probably on the list of most people. Fed 5,000 men. No telling how many women and children were there. And here's what it said of, of that account. In verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus. They'd just been out teaching and doing all these things, and they had done all these miracles. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. <clears throat> and again, the humanity of Jesus just keeps sticking out to me that he doesn't have time to eat. He's willing to do all of this stuff without having time to eat. Not he's fasting intentionally, but he's just so wrapped up in doing the will of the Father that no time to eat, no time to rest, but he says it's time to do that now. And so they go away. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, 32. And now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. Trying to get away, you can't get away from these people. And have you ever had people that you can't get away from, and you're doing anything you can to get away from them? They're like, yeah, we'll get them. And they ran on feet. Because they say, oh, I see this is boat. Let's go over there. Let's see where he's going. And so he looks at them, and I imagine his disciples are exhausted, and they're wore out. And so when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. I don't know if you've ever had a welcoming crowd. I, I flew on a flight one time from, from Baltimore back home, and it was the very first nonstop flight from Baltimore to the airport back home for this airline. And so we get off the plane, and there's news cameras, and there are high school cheerleaders, and there's all this, like, woo! And i got to tell you, that was a, it was an interesting feeling. Like, yeah, I'm special. I was on this first flight and all this. But at the same time, I knew they weren't there for me. But every time I go back and I fly home tomorrow, there will be a group that is sitting there waiting on me, and they'll be looking through the glass, and they'll be excited to see me. And I imagine that kind of is what goes on with Jesus. It doesn't matter how tired you are or how hungry you are. You see those people who have just run to beat you there, waiting on you, Master, we need you. Teacher, we need you. Here's my loved one who's sick. Here's this. What do you have to say? And the disciples are like, oh no, these people again. 
but Jesus 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them things. He gave them what they needed, and he saw, verse 38, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is not late. Uh, yeah, uh, Captain Obvious of the century there. Send them away and go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It's time for them to go home, Jesus. They need to eat. We need to eat. It's time for them to go home. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And I imagine the look on their face was, uh, how are we going to do that? You see, we don't have 200 denarii. We don't have 200 days worth of money stored up, Jesus. And he said to them, well, what do you have? Well, we got five loaves and we got two fish. By the way, when they found out how much they had. So they don't have even enough for the twelve of them. And so he commanded them, they sat down and he fed them and all of those different types of things and they ate until they were filled. The point of that, I think, is this. Jesus knew that crowd needed food. And he was going to take care of them. But it wasn't going to be so easy that this was going to trump everything else. And two chapters later, he's going to feed 4,000 men. And guess what? They've been following him for three days. And Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to have, I have compassion on them because I'm afraid if I send them home, they will faint. And I think what that tells us is that when we think God doesn't have a clue about what we really need, I think he's saying, I know exactly what you need. And you will get it when you need it. Not when you want it. You'll get it when you need it. You can rest assured the time will come for you to get your rest and to get your food. It just may not be on your time. I have this under control. And so I just find it interesting in these miracles that are very familiar to us, that Jesus, we learn a lot of things, that, man, Jesus, you are the Son of God. There's no one else who could walk on this. Wow, he knows what we're trying to do to him. There's nobody else that could know that. And, man, this he knows what we need, and he can provide the things that we can. Jesus teaches us in all different ways. And I think some of those profound lessons are what we don't expect. They didn't come that day looking for a miracle. But what they got was a miracle and a lesson Again, maybe it's just something you'll be thinking about as you go through in your own study and your own reading of when he does a miracle, was he asked to do this? Or did he just do this on his own? And try to figure out why might he have done it this day uh, and chosen this person to perform it all. I just find that interesting because he meant to pass them by and that just didn't add up. I feel better about it now than I did two weeks ago. Uh, so maybe you do as well. We're subject to the invitation anyway this evening. Won't you come now as we stand and as we sing?